0: Speed up with Podcast Speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking,
1: skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org.
0: Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me is today's guest, Professor Philip Tetlock. He is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where he serves in the departments of psychology, political science, and then also the Wharton School of Business. Uh, He is the author of many books, including, uh, famously, Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It? How Can We Know? and his most recent book, Superforecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction. Uh, Philip is also the co-founder and co-principal investigator of the Good Judgment Project, which is a long-term study on how to improve the accuracy of human judgment and forecasting. Phil, welcome to Rationally Speaking. Thank you. So we're going to be talking today about superforecasting and what you've learned from running the Good Judgment Project. And probably a good place to start is to say that Many of our listeners, I'm, I'm sure a large chunk of our audience uh, is already familiar with you and your work um, to at least some extent, um, but probably many of them associate you most strongly with the finding um, that, that received quite a lot of publicity in the years since expert political judgment came out, that experts, forecasters of, of economic or political um, uh, topics are, are not really experts, that their judgment, their forecasting is no better than uh, well, sometimes the claim goes no better than amateurs, sometimes it goes no better than chance. Um, and you, in the beginning of your new book, Superforecasting, you talk about how that uh, finding has sort of gotten distorted from the, original, from the actual conclusion that you found in your research. So why don't you kick things off by elaborating a little bit on that?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I think I, I started the mischief by using the dart-throwing chimpanzee metaphor in the book, um, although I don't think the metaphor was unique to me. I think the Wall Street Journal and The Economist have used it in, in, in picking on stock pickers.
0: And what is that metaphor, just to state it? Uh,
1: the dart-throwing chimpanzee? We didn't actually have a dart-throwing chimpanzee. It's just a shorthand uh, talking about how, you would, uh, how, how well you would do if you were generating predictions purely by chance.
0: Right, so, so the metaphor then is that the experts were no better than dart-throwing chimpanzees?
1: Well, that, 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 that is the takeaway line a lot of people have, um, have, have taken from the, from the uh, Expert Political Judgment book, and I can understand why uh, some people have, have taken it that way. Uh, an important uh, subgroup of experts did indeed have a lot of difficulty performing appreciably better than chance. Um, so that is true, but some experts did perform better than chance, and experts can perform better on some tasks than on others. So just as uh, it's easier to see an eye chart if you're close up than if you're far away, it's easier to see into the future one year out than five years out. So whether experts outperform chance or not hinges on how far out in time we're asking the experts to see, and it also depends on which subgroup of experts we're talking about in the original um, uh, expert political judgment sample.
0: So your work on the Good Judgment Project was, in some senses, a follow-up to your work in, uh, that went into expert political judgment um, do you want to explain the question that you were that you were investigating in The Good Judgment Project?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, one, one way of characterizing the earlier work and the later work is that the expert political judgment work, the early work, was more about cursing the darkness, and the later work, The Good Judgment Project, is about lighting candles. Uh, right, it, was, it was a, a research program that uh, originated in... Um, a big uh, tournament sponsored by um, the Research and Development Branch of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, uh, IARPA, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. Um, And it it was a quite extraordinary thing for a government bureaucracy to do when you think about it. it, 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 I think it has its roots probably in, in the um, major intelligence failure in 2003 on uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I think that event and some other events um, increased interest within the intelligence community in thinking more systematically about how they use probability judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, so the IARPA tournament in a sense was an effort to explore the degree to which it's possible to make meaningful probability judgments of geopolitical problems, economic problems, military problems, uh, that are of direct national security relevance. So they posed approximately 500 questions over four years and um, uh, the forecasters we recruited, uh, tens of thousands of forecasters actually, attempted to answer those questions. The competition itself involved five different academic teams at the beginning. Um, A Good Judgment Project was one of four um, university-based teams competing in the tournament, Um, and a Good Judgment Project happened to win. Um, And the book, in part, is about how it won that forecasting tournament.
0: And you won by a pretty significant margin, didn't you?
1: Uh, Yes, we won by such a significant margin that everyone was surprised, and and (laughs) we we, we were certainly among those who were very surprised by the the size of the margin. Um, IARPA thought that it would be... IARPA set the performance goals at the beginning, and they said, look, if you guys can beat the average forecast from a control group of forecasters by 20% in year one, 30% in year two, I think it was uh, 40% 50% in years three and four, something like that, Uh, if you can beat beat the... the, um, wisdom of the crowd as a user server expression uh by by those margins we'll be really happy and and, and that would be great
0: and uh, the we'll, we'll, we'll keep
1: funding all the teams and and so forth um, so our best forecasters and best algorithms managed to beat the 50 the 50% benchmark after year 1 and they were the only team to beat benchmarks consistently in both years 1 and 2 so IARPA decided to consolidate resources and transfer some of we, we could transfer some of the people who were in the other teams into our our, our team and we would then compete as a mega team against uh, a prediction market and some benchmarks inside the intelligence community itself uh, um, let, let's
0: just back, back up briefly, briefly and and get to get a little more background um, you, can you tell us what, who, who's the control group that you beat, uh, who are the, the forecasters that you outperformed, and also what ki- can you give a couple examples of the kinds of questions that your forecasters were answering?
1: Oh sure, sure. We asked uh, early on whether Medvedev and Putin would change jobs, and uh, Putin would get, get get his old job back. We asked about whether Assad would fall. We asked whether Greece would leave the eurozone. Now, all of these questions had to be asked in a very specific way. Would this happen? By, uh, would, would this very specific thing happen by this very specific date? Um, that's crucial because. It, often in real life forecasting, people have too much wiggle room to argue that they were right after the fact. Right. So we wanted questions that were so well-defined that there would be virtually no wiggle room for reasonable people to disagree about what happened after the fact. Right. And we called that the clairvoyance test. and That was a very important part of the forecasting tournament, the, the generation of questions that are um, rigorously resolvable and um, at the same time relevant to national security.
0: Great. Yeah, I just on that point, I really appreciated that Part of the book where you talk about the importance of uh, of being concrete and precise enough in your prediction that you could even tell if you got it wrong, Um, especially when you sort of have probably have some emotional investment in in being able to conclude that you got it right after all. Um, I was talking to yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I was talking to a a friend of mine who's the CTO of a big tech company out here in the Bay, and was asking him what he looks for in hiring people, and and the biggest thing that he emphasized was. Uh, it's it's he really hates when people won't, as he said, stick their neck out and be concrete or precise. I, f- I forget which word he used. And I, mm-hmm. I, I sort of double clicked on that phrase, stick your neck out. What, why did he use that phrase? And he said, well, you know, if th- the more concrete you are in what you're claiming, the greater chance people will be able to tell that you're wrong. <laughs> um, and,
1: which yes, is- exactly. And, and and the greater the opportunity you will have to learn whether, how close or far you are from the truth and to learn. Exactly. If you- you keep your predictions vague. It's very, very difficult after the fact to figure out how close or far you were, and whether your 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 beliefs need to be modified in one direction or another. Right. So right. you 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 cut yourself off from really valuable feedback by relying on vague verbiage.
0: Great. Oh, and and then the other uh, part of my question was, uh, who was the control group that you beat?
1: Oh, that was a group that was recruited by the government of forecasters, uh, essentially from the same it's a, it recruited in essentially the same way that our forecasters were recruited by advertising in professional societies and um, and so forth
0: great uh, and the forecasters who you recruited were they were essentially am- amateurs probably more knowledgeable uh, amateurs than the average person but but not people who were making a living out of forecasting
1: well they certainly weren't pundits or uh, they, and they certainly didn't make their living. Well, very few of them made their living writing or commenting on contemporary political, economic, military trends. Uh, there were a few who were former intelligence analysts and so forth, there were, there were people who had some significant subject matter expertise. But when you consider the range of questions that Iarpa asks, it's virtually impossible for any human being to be considered a subject matter expert on more than a tiny fraction of them. Yeah. I mean, imagine going from a question on what's the Arctic sea ice mass going to be next fall to a question about Syrian refugee flows to a question right. about whether there's going to be a violent Sino-Japanese clash in the East China Sea, uh, to a question about what's going to happen to the Chinese currency, and then move on to the Guatemalan elections.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: All um, over the map, <laughs> quite literally all over the map.
0: But they were, I, I gather, actually, I, full disclosure, I know several people who were participating in the Good Judgment Project, um, so I, I do know that they spent a fair amount of time just keeping informed and and, and taking in new information that might be relevant to these predictions.
1: Um, oh, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you do, and, and it, it's, it's, all, it's, it's always fun to talk to the participants in the Good Judgment Project. Um, not just the super forecasters. Um, I mean, there are a lot of extremely talented people who didn't make the cut for the super super forecaster, which is a somewhat arbitrary cut. Um, so we were really blessed by, by, the, by the variety of uh, talented people who signed up and, and, and de- dedicated a lot of their, their time to thinking about these, um, these problems and the challenges of attaching meaningful probability estimates. To real-world events that many pundits believe it's impossible to attach probability estimates to.
0: Yeah, and I, I, at some point later in the conversation, I hope we'll get to talk about the, uh, the, the motivation or, or the drive that animated the super forecasters. But, uh, but for now, I just want to uh, make sure we get to the, uh, I guess the punchline of what you found was common to these super forecasters. What it seemed that they were doing in order to be super forecasters.
1: Well, if I had to identify one mega takeaway uh, from the project, it, w- it would be really pretty simple. It would be that um, if you wanna become a superforecaster, a necessary, although not sufficient, condition for becoming a super forecaster is the following. You have to believe that um, it's possible uh, to cultivate the skill of subjective probability estimation of messy real world real world events and you have to believe that it's worth your effort to, to give it a try so you have to it, 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 uh, we have a quote in the book from a great poker player and also a chief risk officer of a big hedge fund aqr aaron brown um about how you tell the difference between a, a um a great poker player and a talented amateur. Mm-hmm. And the, the short answer is, in his view, that the great player knows the difference between a 55-45 proposition and a, and a 45-55 proposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when, you, when you're talking about poker, people say, well, sure, I, yeah, I, I, n- nobody really wants to argue with that because poker is a game in which you're sampling from a well-defined universe of cards, right, the card deck, and it's, it's a game of repeated play. So, over time, this superior acumen can translate into better outcomes, even though the better player might, might not lose, on, might, might well lose on any given hand. Um, Is the same true for making predictions about Syria? Is the same true for making predictions about Russian geopolitical intent or whether Scotland is gonna secede from the UK and so forth? Um, well, so a lot of people say, well, history is different. It's not like um, sampling cards from a, from a poker deck. Uh, history only runs once. We only get to see one run of history. Um, so there are some very smart people who are very suspicious of the idea that it's even meaningful to attach probability estimates to the questions that were posed in the Arpa tournament. So what I regard as maybe the most extraordinary result of, of the tournament is that we have shown pretty conclusively that these probabil- that the, the, judgment, the probability judgments our forecasters were making were meaningful.
0: Yeah, that's so I I agree that's very interesting both that you were able to to demonstrate and also that people that that many very smart people don't have that intuition that very very strongly don't have that intuition. Um, and uh, I, which I've also encountered in in the work that I've done trying to uh train uh, good judgment and, and rationality. Um, and the only way that I've been able to sometimes get traction on that is when someone is insisting that there's no way to assign a number to their degree of, of belief in something or, or to the, their um, prediction uh, is to say, oh, okay, so then it's probably about 95%. And then they'll recoil and say, oh, well, no, it's, nowhere n- it's nothing like 95%. And then I'll say, oh, okay, so is it, is it kind of like 2%? I'll say, well, no, that's crazy, that's far too low. And I can gradually, you know, sort of coax them towards at least a range that they won't say is absurd. Um, But that's that's the only way to do it.
1: That's a wonderful example, and and it's related to something we're about to do on the Good Judgment blog. We're about to issue a challenge to some of the skeptics um, in which we do propose to make a series of bets. Um, that the super forecasters can outperform chance on questions that the skeptics themselves nominate as being particularly unique. Mm. Marion says that uniqueness can't be a matter of degree, it has to be all or none, but uh, I think one of the clear takeaways from our research is that uniqueness is very much a matter of degree.
0: That's right. I, so this actually leads me to a question I was looking forward to asking you that I that I currently feel rather confused about, which is that you know, despite my my resolve that you can assign numbers uh, to your to your degrees of uncertainty um, and that that it's useful to do so, it still seems to me that there's a, a pretty significant um, difference between the uncertainties that I have in some domains, and the uncertainty I have in other domains. So, for example, the 50 percent that I would assign to a coin flip coming up heads feels very different than the 50 percent I would assign to uh, just to pull a, a made up example um, uh, human-level artificial intelligence being invented in the next hundred years, something like that, uh, where maybe I would say 50% to that, but it feels like a very different kind of 50% than the 50% I'd give to the coin flip. Um, and and in some sense, mathematically, uh, it's not very meaningful to talk about your uncertainty about your uncertainty. It just sort of cancels out like like layers of Tetris blocks or something. <laughs> but... But I've been searching for a way to capture what feels to me like a real difference in those kinds of estimates. And the only thing I've come up with so far, uh, which I'm curious what you think about this, is that the difference is something like uh, the probability I sign to my current estimate changing in response to new information in the future, um, in that I would be very surprised if the 50% I put on the coin flip clip coming up heads would change in response to new information but i wouldn't be surprised at all if my 50 percent on the uh, artificial intelligence question would change um and of course i don't know which way which direction it would change because if i did then it would already have changed but uh but i expect the magnitude of the change to be greater or something like that what do you think
1: Um, That's very interesting, and um, a lot lot of philosophers have talked about about these issues. Um, We use some philosophical terms briefly in in the end notes of the book, (laughs) distinguishing distinguishing between epistemic and aleatory uncertainty, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, Your example of the coin flip versus the AI, the projections of the future of AI. yeah, those do feel different. Um, I'm not sure the difference is what you're pointing to. The, um, yeah, nor the am I. <laughs> imagine uh, changing your mind in response to new evidence. I mean, you could imagine a coin flip is being conducted by a demon that has the power to uh, change at any given moment whether the coin is biased or not. Um, uh, but you're starting from a 50-50 prior. So um, uh, there you, you, you would be willing to change your mind, right, quite quickly. Right. Would it, would that would that render the coin flip problem interchangeable with the AI problem?
0: I mean it it feels like so. it comes down to how well defined um maybe it's a, about how how well defined the prior is or something?
1: Like I I, I yeah, I, I I I think so. Yes. Uh how much uncertain? Right. You so you say you say a lot of people are very dubious about second order probabilities, but yeah. Uh, you might say, I, I think there's a 50-50 probability with respect to the AI scenario, but what you really mean is I think the probability could be anywhere between 10 and 90. Um,
0: yeah.
1: yeah. In the other case, you think it's more like 50-50, um, so it would be a range of probabilities that you're endorsing rather than a, a scalar.
0: Yeah, I mean, the my <laughs> my best counter to my own claim that you can put a probability on anything is the fact that, uh, and I'm wondering if you have a counter to this counter, um, But, you know, so if you really feel like you know nothing, then you kind of fall back on some sort of ignorance prior, uh, which in the case of a coin flip would be 50-50. You know, I know nothing uh, or, uh, well, your ignorance prior will change depending on what what kind of question it is. Um, But there are lots of different ignorance priors you could use. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different reference classes that you could say the case of of the development of artificial intelligence belongs to um, and which reference class you pick would... Would uh, affect which ignorance prior you use, um, and, and it seems kind of like there's no bottom to that process, where <laughs> you can have, you know, a prior over different ignorance priors, but where does that come from, et cetera, et cetera? So uh, at a certain point, I'm sometimes inclined to say that there are probabilities that just never, that aren't well defined at, at bottom.
1: Um, fair enough. Um, yes. um I, I don't know whether your readers are familiar with the the you're using the term ignorance prior. Maybe you want to define it for your if you're, for your listeners or not. But I said yeah. readers as if I'm writing a book.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I make that mistake sometimes too. I think it's because the content is so cerebral that it really feels <laughs> like a, a a book in audio form. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, right. So just um, the 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 ignorance prior is just the. Um, the probability distribution that you have when you when you don't have any particular information about the situation, aside from just what kind of situation it is.
1: Yeah. Is uh, or even more radically, you don't have any information at all, aside from the fact that a question was asked. Um, so, the ignorance prior in the IARPA questions, this is a dichotomous IARPA question, is something going to happen or not going to happen, as opposed to so-called multi- multinomials, have you know, many options. Uh, it, it, it's a dichotomous IARPA question, it's, the ignorance prior is 50-50. Um, and, but ignorance priors are really mischievous because you can take the question and if you carved it up into, uh, if you carved one side of it up into more, into more com- compartments than the other side, you'd weight the probability more toward that side. You see what I'm saying? Right. Um, and this is a fam- these are famous demonstration of support theory by and Craig Fox and Amos Tversky and people like that. Um, uh, so it's very very mischievous. Here's a here's a here's a here's a takeaway on ignorance priors, though. Um, the the worst forecasters in the Arpa tournament were 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 much likelier than super forecasters to use 50 50. Hmm. So they are much okay. likelier to use ignorance priors. Now, why didn't the super forecasters uh, retreat to the ignorance priors at least when they were initially asked the question? Uh, because after all, even the super forecasters aren't going to know very much about many of these questions, right? Right. Um, So, and the answer to that seems to be the super forecasters are really quick to look for reference classes or comparison classes that, um, help to narrow the uncertainty range and put them in a more plausible ballpark than 50, 50. So if, if you're asked a question about some obscure African, whether some obscure African dictator is going to be in power in the next 12 months after, after 12 months have expired, uh, you might say if you, if you were a regular forecaster, you might say, I have no idea 50, 50, but if you're a super forecaster, you're more likely to say, well, let's see uh, how often do dictators in general who have been in power X years tend to survive another year. Mm-hmm. And the answer is probably about 90% or plus. Um, um, in which case, the super forecast would be more likely to start with a very high probability of longevity and power, and then adjust that probability in response to developments like, oh, well, it turns out that Afri- that particular African dictator is 91 years old and has advanced prostate cancer, or that particular African dictator, there's riots in the capital city. You see what I'm saying?
0: Right, right, right. Well, so that that brings up another interesting question that, that might occur to people as they read your book, uh, although you do address it um, in the middle of the book. Which is uh, I guess it has two parts. One is, um, okay. how how confident can we be that the people who were identified as super forecasters weren't just a lucky, because if you have thousands of people making predictions, then even if none of them have special skill, just by chance some of them are going to end up making more accurate predictions than the rest. Um, or B, just the people who spent more time on it, um, who, you know actually took the trouble to uh, investigate the past rates, uh, you know, in that reference class or to look at other reference classes, so, you know, which is still a valuable thing to learn if that's what's going on, um, but it, it doesn't point, it doesn't really point to the hypothesis about there being a, uh, an additional skill beyond just, you know, taking the time to investigate the questions.
1: hmm So you're asking two questions there. Okay. One is about regression toward the mean and the other is about the uh, cost-benefit uses of time and effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first question uh, is, in a sense, this is the Warren Buffett or George Soros question, isn't it? Uh, you, toss enough, you toss enough coins thousands of times, uh, and, and some are, are going to wind up heads 60, 70, 100 times in a row. Right. Um, and that's just going to happen. And then you're going to call those people geniuses um, because they happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, most investors don't subscribe to such a strong form of the official market hypothesis that they would dismiss you know, the the very, the very best investors as just lucky. Um, but um, it's an interesting idea and, and we tested it very systematically in the ARPA tournament by looking at how much regression toward the mean there was uh, in performance from one year to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if the super forecasters were performing on a task that say that you created a coin toss guessing, um, and it's a fair coin, and uh, let's say some of the, that we take the top 2% of forecasters on the coin toss guessing in year one, and we say, well, what percentage of those are gonna wind up in the top 2% in year two? Um, and uh, the answer would be, um, uh maybe two percent uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the vast majority of the forecasters are going to regress toward the mean right mm-hmm. um and, and in fact the best prediction of where the super forecasters in year one are going to be in year two is the mean right. because there's zero correlation right mm-hmm. between how well you do from one year to the next right. so it's just going to be total regression toward the mean.
0: uh i mean unless you're uh you're gaining a skill as you do it right
1: Well, unless you believe in ESP or unless the coin is somehow rigged.
0: Oh, oh, with the coin, yes.
1: Uh, the, the coin kick but right. So if, if you if you look at it, it, so the question is, what what's the ratio of skill to luck in the performance in performance in the Arpa tournament? You see, say, say what's the ratio of skill to luck in batting in the American League of baseball, or uh, what's the you know ratio of skill to luck in football or basketball? Mm-hmm. And those are all meaningful questions um, you can ask. To what extent do teams regress toward the mean, or players for that matter regress toward the mean in their performance? And there, there is there is regression toward the mean is very you know, it's all over the place. It's an extremely useful prediction tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the short answer to this question is that it seems to be about a 70-30 skill-lock ratio. Uh, uh, performance in our tournament seems to be about 70% skill, 30% lock, judging by the amount of regression we observe toward the mean um, among forecasters in general. Interestingly, we don't observe very much regression at all among super forecasters. Uh, which I defies the laws of statistics. Uh, and I, I, I think I know why, <laughs> because there's a countervailing causal force. People really like to be recognized as super forecasters. when they move from one year to the next. They wanna preserve that status. They have an opportunity to work with other super forecasters and teams. So there's a whole series of things that are happening that are, are elevating the performance of super forecasters and insulating them from regression toward the mean to a substantial degree. But forecasters in general do regress toward the mean. Very, you know, the, the very talented ones tend to move downward and the, the worst ones tend to move upward, um, just purely on the basis of uh, the laws of chance.
0: Right. But you can, you can, to some extent, tease out those separate, those separate channels. Uh, so
1: you, you sure can. They're very standard statistical tools for doing that.
0: Great. Um, and then uh, does, does that actually address the, the question about um, how much of their success comes down to the amount of time they spent um, investigating the question?
1: Well, I, I have a pretty hard quantitative answer to your first question. I don't have a hard quantitative answer to your second question because it was very difficult to estimate the amount of time and cognitive effort forecasters were expending per question. Yeah, so I, uh, I think that's an, that's an a very important topic for future work. I think it's certainly true that the superforecasters did work hard. I think it's also true, and this is relevant to the first commandment and the Ten Commandments uh, for superforecasters, that they're really good at triage.
0: Awesome.
1: So. If we ask if we ask super forecasters a question for which there are some very r- readily available high quality public substitutes for their own predictions they would probably latch on, they would do what many people would make, consider to be cheating and they would simply say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go for that. So instead of trying to figure out what the probability of Hillary Clinton being the next president of the United States is, they might turn to a, a site like Nate Silver's 538 and look at the various base rate analyses that Nate Silver has done, the poll analyses, and the trend analyses, um, and rather than doing them all themselves, can they simply count on other people. You count on the futures market or count on some knowledgeable website uh, to do it for you. Um, Superforecasters often look at two or three different things and average them, Um, but if they don't have a lot of time and there are readily available high-quality public data sources, um, superforecasters might well decide not to invest very much time in a question and and instead invest their effort in questions where there are no high-quality public data sources and where analytical effort is more likely to pay off.
0: Right, right. Uh, at the workshops that my organization runs, we, we tend to have prediction markets, um, which is partly just a fun game and partly a, a way to sort of train the habit of making predictions and putting uh, numbers on your uncertainty. Uh, and we have this this saying that cheating is technique, which is exactly that. Um, and uh, right, and, right. and I think people, to some extent, I think the, the need to say this speaks to the, um, the difference between following a process and trying to get the right answer, which... You know, those two things often line up. Um, But sometimes I think people uh, people think that sort of the virtuous thing to do is to try to figure it out and use their own head or something like that. But actually, you know, the 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 boundaries of our brains extend nowadays extend far beyond, you know, what's immediately available to us. And uh, and that information can be incredibly valuable.
1: Right, I'm not saying the super forecasters will always defer to these sources, uh, but I, I think they're well aware that they better have some darn good reasons for disagreeing with Nate Silver or some darn right. good reasons for disagreeing with futures markets. Right. Um, um, and incidentally, prediction markets were an important part of our work as well. Um, they were one of the benchmarks against, against which super forecasters were compared.
0: Um, we haven't actually. So you, you talked about the the one most important thing um, that super forecasters do. But do you want to go into any more of the nitty-gritty of the, the methods that your team used to win?
1: Uh, do you want me to?
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, to the extent that they're relevant to the advice that you would give to people wanting to become super forecasters, and maybe that's not maybe it's not relevant.
1: Um, well, the first big takeaway I think I mentioned the practical significance is it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. You have to believe it's possible to develop this as a skill. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think it, it's, it's possible, because probabilities aren't gonna even apply to these things, or if you don't think it's worth your time and effort to do it, because you don't really need to know the difference between a 60-40 bet and a 40-60 bet in your line of work. If you if you're in the, if you fall into those categories, then you probably won't want to invest effort in becoming a super forecaster. But if you think that improved granularity and accuracy of probability judgments will improve your life and your work performance, and if you think that it's, it's doable within the task domains you work in, then the, the payoffs are potentially very large
0: it's kind of ironic actually that the the thing you need to have in place to have the motivation to improve your forecasting skill is this belief which is not a very intuitive belief because it doesn't you know just looking at it intuitively 60 40 versus 55 45 doesn't feel like that big a difference and our intuition doesn't easily appreciate how much that adds up to over time um but in order to to override your intuitive judgment that that 60 40 versus 45 55 shouldn't really matter you need to already have the skill that's important yeah. to be a good super forecaster uh, right so yeah.
1: and yeah. and you know in, in Kahneman's great book thinking fast and slow um, there's an explanation for that phenomenon of why it's not so intuitive um, and and that is that people really have a hard time distinguishing shades of maybe right. um, that the amount of, of weight that a probability of 30% gets relative to a probability of 70%, the difference is not that large. But when you move from 90% to, to 100% or from 10% to 0%, it has a huge effect on decision making. Right. So there's, it, the, the probability, we call it the probability weighting function in prospect theory, it's really flat in the middle. Right, <laughs> Which right. means that people are, have a very hard time seeing the value of becoming increasingly granular in that middle zone. Uh, it, it's a perceptual blind spot, and it's an expensive one, and uh, great poker players and great investors are able to capitalize on that.
0: So that uh, brings me to a question I had about this idea of incremental updating, of, of taking in new information and, and letting it adjust your probability estimates, even if that information, even if it only adjusts your estimates a little bit, uh, which, as you explain in the book, is a, an important thing that superforecasters are doing that most people don't do. Um, and this is something that, uh, that I advocate, I, I, I talk a lot about Bayes rule and I do videos on Bayes rule and Bayesian thinking, and this is the main thing that I try to get people to do. Uh, I, I refer to it sometimes as snowflakes of evidence that these, these little snowflakes, uh, might not shift you that much on their own, but over time they can accumulate enough collective weight to break a tree branch. Um, and, and, and I do believe that's important, but I worry sometimes that, uh, because our intuition is not that granu- or uh, not that um, fine grained about degrees of confidence, that if people try to follow the advice about incre- incrementally updating, that might just cause them to over-update. Basically, that they'll get you know these little pieces of evidence, and that'll just sway them far too much. So I'm I'm yeah. just curious how like the super forecasters seem to have avoided that problem, and I'm curious how they did it.
1: Um, no, oh, uh, that I, I, this is a topic on which I, w- I would probably go on for hours if you let me. Um, <laughs> so there are, there are of course two types of errors people can make in this situation. They could, they could be fall prey to belief perseverance and they could fail to update when they should have, or they can fall prey to what people in finance call excessive volatility and they, that they over update in response right. to every little bit of flaky news. Um, and m- people manage to make both mistakes. Um, not not simultaneously, but <laughs> manage to alternate between them quite rapidly. Um, uh, we're more likely to make the belief perseverance mistake when we have strong ideological, emotional priors on an issue, and we're and just interpret all the contradictory evidence into our schema. Right? Um, uh, we're more likely to uh, over-update in financial markets where we don't have any great ego investment in a stock, but we're really jittery about getting out second out second-guessed by by other investors, so mm-hmm. we, we we over-adjust there. Yeah. Um, So there are situations which both can occur. And we we, we call this riding the error balancing bicycle. Uh, there are different, for every cognitive bias you can make in, 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 in life, there's an equal and offsetting bias. <laughs> you could be over adjusted, or you could under adjust your beliefs in response to evidence. You could be over confident or underconfident, and so forth. Um, so there are very, there are, this is kind of a dialectic uh, that you have to um, manage. Mm-hmm. And the super forecasters, for various reasons, are very good at it. I think the best way to learn to be good at it, well, there are two ways to do it. One, one is by doing training exercises and, and engaging in conversations like, this in which we think about it um but I think there's there are limits to how far you can go with that purely didactic approach I think you need to um get on get on the bike and and try to ride it um so, we talked about um, philosopher Michael Polanyi and how he distinguished between, distinguish between tacit and explicit knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the explicit knowledge would be trying to learn how to ride a bicycle by reading a, um, a textbook on Newtonian mechanics, and that'll give you the guidelines for how to do the cosines and the coefficients to, so you don't fall off when you go into a curve on a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the, um, the, the, the tacit knowledge approach is to get on the bicycle and start trying to ride it. Um, And the analogy of that here is getting into a forecasting tournament and start making judgments. Um, the Newtonian manual would be analogous to our probability reasoning training and the book has a lot of guidelines as well uh, but there's no substitute for going to forecasting tournaments and actually engaging in this in this process um, so I'll just plug www.goodjudgment.com because that's the new forecasting website um, that is the sequel to the Good Judgment Project and people can visit that and, and there, are, there are lots of questions that are posted and there'll be some interesting competitions emerging and um, there will be some work that will involve um work with the government and there'll be other work that that uh, in- <clears throat> involves um uh, more more fun the stuff on domestic politics and sports and things like that
0: great we'll link to that on the uh on the podcast website as well oh thank you um so that uh the the uh need for for tacit knowledge and uh therefore the need for practice is uh the next thing that I wanted to talk about um because I I, I think the, your track record of, um, of showing improvement in forecasting ability is, is quite compelling. And I thought it was pretty cool to see even Daniel Kahneman, who's been, um, uh, well, I mean, a leader of the heuristics and biases field, but also a you know, pretty prominent skeptic of our ability to improve uh, our, our built-in biases, um, to see even him say, you know, uh, Phil Tetlock's track record is very compelling evidence and maybe suggest that I've been overly skeptical. Um, that was very cool. Uh, And I like the way that you described yourself as as an optimistic skeptic. That's kind of how I think of myself as well um, about this domain. Um, But uh, so that brings me to to my question of how much you think practice in a domain like the Good Judgment Project's domain of political and economic forecasting, uh, how much your improvement in that domain transfers to other domains? Like, would we expect the super forecasters in the Good Judgment Project to also be better calibrated um, and, and to use those same kinds of skills in predictions about uh, how people in their life will react or about whether a purchase will make them happy, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Um, so uh, I don't really have a lot of evidence from the good judgment data set to directly answer your question, uh, but I do have some knowledge of the research literature on transfer of training, mm-hmm. and it, it gives us grounds for being pessimistic. Uh, if you want to learn how to become well-calibrated, well-calibrated weather forecaster or a granular weather forecaster, high discrimination granular, well-calibrated forecast in meteorology, uh, make meteorological predictions. Uh, don't 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 count on playing poker to <laughs> get you through. Uh, and if you want to learn how to be, you should look at the Middle East. You, want to, you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it really is very important, I think, to focus on. So I I, I do believe in subject matter expertise. Uh, I mean, I, I think I say that in the book that I, I, I'm sometimes identified with this kind of know nothing position that expertise is is bunk. Uh, but that's bunk. I don't think expertise <laughs> is bunk.
0: Well, then maybe we could talk a little more about why you have been an optimistic skeptic. Uh, in contrast to say Kahneman's, uh, pessimistic skepticism. Um, I, so I, I m- my sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, uh, even before the Good Judgment Project, um, you thought it was at least plausible, feasible to improve, um, people's built-in biases, or you wouldn't have tried at all. Uh, and I, so I, I have two theories about why Kahneman is more pessimistic than we are, or at least was more pessimistic, um, probably still is to a large extent. Um, And they're first that the research in the heuristics and biases literature so far has looked at relatively short-term, simple interventions to to see if people can overcome their biases, like, like, you know, telling people about a bias, um, and that that hasn't really worked, and I'm not that surprised by that and wouldn't have expected a priori an intervention like that to work. And that the hypothesis you're testing is more like, does, like, Intense, deliberate practice over time improve people's biases, which is, I think, a much more promising hypothesis and a different one than has been tested in the literature. Kahneman was working in. Um, yeah,
1: I think deep, deep, deliberative practice that's informed by some key concepts like the error riding bicycle and some some key heuristics um, uh, is is the way to go. Um, that's the best. Uh, I, that's, I think, the, the, the best evidence for effective long term biasing of real world problems. It, it would be consistent with that. Um, but you know that's that's a that's a fairly substantial undertaking. Uh, but you know our our training didn't take all that long in, in the IARPA tournament. It took only an hour, and the effects uh, ramified through the entire forecasting year, which was truly astonishing. Um, but I, I think when people take to have training and they they start to apply it quickly, uh, it, it it tends to be stickier.
0: Ah, and but do you think that Kahneman, I mean, I suppose I should just ask Kahneman, uh, But do you think that his pessimism uh, was about that kind of deliberative practice? Uh, yeah.
1: Um, n- no. Um, uh, well, well, Danny Kahneman was a colleague of mine at Berkeley, and, and he's a, he's a, he's a, he and Ann have been good friends of my wife, Barb, and I for a long time. And I, we talk about the kind of the little uh, friendly argument that Barb and Danny had in chapter, what is it, chapter, I guess, 11 of the book. We talk about scope sensitivity. Um and it, um, I mean, this is a hard thing to describe it with uh, in an audio modality. But but it, 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 in Danny's book, uh, he he, he out the Mueller lyer illusion. I think, uh, which is a really really compelling optical illusion. You see, you see these lines, and one line looks longer than the other, and you have to pull out a ruler and you have to measure it. And you see that the, whether lines are identical in length, and then you take away the ruler and they still look different. Um, so some perceptual illusions are very tenacious. They they they, they it, it's as though they're virtually impossible to. Override um, on anything other than just an immediate case-by-case basis when you pull up the ruler. Uh, You know what I mean?
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, Um I suppose you have to just. Just. If, if
1: you believe biases are like that, if you believe that cognitive biases are, are analogous to perceptual biases, like the Müller-Lyer illusion, the op- optical illusions of that sort, which are truly tenacious, and it's too bad we can't flash something up with a PowerPoint or something to show people how tenacious they are, um, but they, they're really, they really, they're really hard to, hard, hard for they're virtually impossible for people to to overcome, other than by you know just pulling out rulers or other measurement devices, objective measurement devices, because our perceptual system can't do it. Um, if you believe that cognitive biases are like that, you're going to be very much a pessimist. Uh, if you believe that they are more the product of rational deliberative thought or irrational deliberative thought, uh, you're going to be more optimistic that introducing correctives uh, will help.
0: Right. Well, or, you know, it depends on what you're, what you're trying to do when you're trying to uh, overcome biases. If you're trying to get over even the initial impulse to bias, then that would be very difficult if they're similar to visual biases. Um, or illusions. But if you're trying to just make better decisions, then a different way to do that is just to be able to recognize, oh, yeah, this is one of those cases where the lines look different lengths, um, but they're actually not. And to be able to just override your initial system one impulse. Yes. Which seems like a fair workaround to me, although it's effortful.
1: Right, but so this debate over scope sensitivity was interesting uh, because it, it has really quite powerful implications for how accurate you can be as a forecaster. Um, for a lot of people, you ask them the question, how likely is this odd to fall from power in the next six months or the next twelve months or the next eighteen months?" Um, if you ask one individual all those versions of the question, they'll give you somewhat different answers for different time frames. But imagine you take a group of regular forecasters and you ask one-third of them the six-month question, one-third of them the 12-month question, one-third of them the 18-month question, um, are they gonna give you very different answers? And the answer is no, by and large. They're gonna give you roughly identical answers for six, 12, and 18 months, which suggests that their answers are not sensitive to temporal scope. When you do that with super-forecasters, and you divide superforecasters into three groups, and you ask one of them a six-month question, the other 12, and the other an 18-month question, they're not perfectly scope-sensitive, uh, but they're, they're much more so. Mm-hmm. Um, now, why is that? It's an interesting puzzle. Uh the, the super forecasters seem to be thinking in a truly more probabilistic way, whereas the regular forecasters seem to be thinking in more of a causal hunch way. It's as though the regular forecasters are saying something like, Well, let me see, what's the balance of power in Syria here right now? Looks like it may be tilting toward Assad with the Russians intervening, so I'm gonna put it at uh you know 80-20 is going to survive and yeah it'll be 80-20 and they'll give you they'll say 80-20 for six months for 12 months or 18 months <laughs> Yep. right across the board because what they're doing is they're translating that kind of balance of power um uh, cognition they have in the brain into a probability judgment quite directly whereas the super forecasters they, they look at the balance of power stuff too but they're also they're more likely to ask themselves a question about well how would my answer be different if i were asked in, of, in about a month or 12 months or 24 months, they, 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 they spontaneously mutate the question and ask, ask, how would my answer be different if, if key parameters in the question were different? Uh, and that's a great way to do sensitivity testing of your, of your intuitions. And it's something that some of the, the best super forecasters, I'm not saying all super forecasters do this, but I think the very best ones have a, have a real flair for this. And it's, it's, it's truly impressive. And, and, um, when, when, I talk to, um, uh, very senior investment people on Wall Street or, um, you know, or for that matter, Daniel Kahneman, uh, and, and what is, what's impressive about super forecasters? It's not that they're hardworking; it's that my God, how could they possibly be scope sensitive?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it is a very sticky, very sticky bias, uh, and that that trait that you're pointing to of the super forecasters uh, has it, it has seemed increasingly important to me, even for questions that don't, uh, sort of personal choices or, or emotional questions that don't have a, an easily objectively measurable right answer. Um, but the tendency that I've seen in some people to ask themselves, yeah. well, okay, you know, I, I reacted this way, um, this, I reacted with this emotion in this situation, um, but what if, you know, counterfactually, what if the person had phrased it a different way? Or what if um, I had, you know, been more successful at my job this year or something? Would I then have felt as resentful, you know, of the way that they asked that of the way they made that comment. Um, and to be able to do that kind of se- sensitivity uh, test of your own emotional reactions and discover, huh, actually, you know, this person's choice wasn't the main determinant of my bad mood <laughs> because I can see that the bad mood could have come from all these other things, for example. Mm-hmm. Is, it mm-hmm. seems like a very valuable um, skill that, uh, or a skill that I believe to be very valuable, even though it's harder to to, um, to demonstrate with uh, with... You know, accuracy scores. Yeah, it,
1: running little thought experiments in your head on your, on your own intuitions is, um, some people do it so much that they get they can do it quite efficiently. Um, it's not a bad mental habit to cultivate.
0: Yeah, uh, we have, we're almost out of time, um, but I wanted to ask you one last question, which, uh, so I, I studied economics when I was younger, and I, I don't practice it now, but I do retain some of the heuristics of economics that I think are particularly valuable. And one of them is this question, um, which, uh, well, I I suppose one way to express it would be with this old joke about the two economists walking down the street, uh, one being like the younger student and one the elderly professor. And the student says, oh, hey, look, there's a $20 bill lying in the gutter. And the elderly professor immediately says, no, there isn't, because if there were, someone would have already picked it up. Uh, Which is kind of... uh, uh, a A silly joke, but also pointing at a valuable, um, a valuable question to ask oneself, which is if there's if it seems like there's easy money, uh, you should ask yourself, you know, why hasn't someone picked it up already? And so I guess I'm wondering with super forecasting and and with uh, trainable good judgment in general, uh, it seems like there would be a significant profit incentive to to develop that. Um, and I'm wondering why companies in competitive markets haven't already made super forecasting standard practice.
1: okay um so i love I love that joke by the way yeah. I, I think it's- <laughs> Let's joke. A um, couple of reasons. Um, one of them is forecast okay, uh, One of them is more psychological. The other is more so- sociological. Um, the, the more sociological reason is that forecasting tournaments tend to disrupt status hierarchies, especially stale status hierarchies. I mean, imagine I'm okay. I'm sixty-one years old, and. Um, I, I'm, I just say I'm an intelligence analyst, and I'm, I'm the senior intelligence analyst on China. I'm, I'm I'm the National Intelligence Council. I'm the go-to person for the presidential daily briefing on China. I write influential National Intelligence estimates. I'm you know really important guy. And someone comes along and in the intelligence community and says, "Hey, let's run forecasting tournaments here." And forecasting tournaments are level playing field competitions in which 25-year-old analysts can offer probability judgments to compete against the 61-year-old analyst probability judgments. Um, how am I going to react to that? Mm-hmm. And roughly the way Tom Friedman was likely to react to Bill Flack, the Bill Flack story in, in the book, uh very unenthusiastically. Um, so that's a big reason, a huge sociological organizational reason why, why there would be inertia here. The other thing is a lot of people, are, as we discussed earlier, are very skeptical that there is room for improvement, or that even probability judgments are possible in these domains. Uh, I think we have this is the first really large scale empirical demonstration that it's possible to improve subjective probability estimation of real world events uh, that many people previously thought were unquantifiable and and uh, not estimatable in terms on a probability metric. Um, it, so I think it's a I think it's a, a big discovery, frankly, and it's with the twenty dollar bill that was not discovered because it's, it's it's covered up quite a bit.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's a good way to put it. Nice little little adaptation of the joke. Um, well, unfortunately, we're we're over time for this section of the podcast, so I will uh, regretfully wrap up this uh, conversation, and we'll move on to the rationally speaking. Page. Every episode, we invite our guest to introduce the Rationally Speaking pick of the episode. Um, that's historically been a uh, book, movie, website, or something, whatever else tickles their rational fancy. Um, but this time, I'm, I'm introducing a new wrinkle, which is that I'm asking our guests to name a book, movie, website, etc. that was formative in their thinking about some interesting issue. So something that, that shifted them. Uh, in an interesting way. So with that introduction, Phil, what's your rationally speaking pick for this episode?
1: Um, when I was in graduate school in the late 1970s at Yale, I, was in, um, psych- I was, my PhD was in psychology, but I was very interested in political science. And a book was published in 1976 by Robert Dervis: Perception and Misperception in International Politics that I thought was just brilliant, I still think it is brilliant, um, and it um, persuaded me that political psychology might be a viable uh, field in which to specialize. Um, so I, I think that book had um, a significant impact on me in, in a number of ways, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's an old book, but it's a, it's a good book, and I, I think it's worth reading.
0: Excellent. Well, we will uh, link to that on the podcast website, as well as to Super Forecasting and to the Good Judgment Project website. Okay. Well, no, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show.
1: It, it really has been a pleasure talking with you. I hope you have a chance to, to meet to meet sometime. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a your delightful conversationalist and you know, really smart questions. One of the best interviews I've had. Um, oh, wonderful. Ah. It's, uh, a pleasure to talk
0: to you. I'm so glad this is audio because I'm sure I'm blushing right now. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks again. And uh, this concludes another episode of the Rationally Speaking podcast. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense.
1: The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.